Welcome to this second podcast provided by Oxford University's First World War Poetry Project. The aim of this second podcast is to continue to guide you through the exhibits at London's Imperial War Museum and link them to the poetry of World War I. This guide is meant to accompany you as you wander around the exhibitions. We will assume that you have already completed the first podcast and are now standing outside the entrance to the Trench Experience, a reconstruction of a small part of a British trench on the Western Front. Stop the podcast until you are there. This exhibition will show you a condensed scene of a British frontline trench, based on a trench held by the Lancashire Fusiliers in 1916 on the Somme. At various points there are small vignettes where audio recordings accompany the figures. You will see the basic construction of the trench in terms of dugouts, some of the tools the soldiers used and so on. First, some basic facts about trenches. After the initial mobile war of 1914, it was clear that a stalemate was developing with no sign of a major breakthrough. The German army retreated to the high ground and entrenched, whilst the Allies, notably the British Expeditionary Force, were forced to dig in in less strategic positions. German trenches tended to be better constructed as they were meant to be more permanent. The German army wanted to keep all the land it had conquered. The British army's view, however, was that the trenches would be temporary, as they would be pushing the Germans back, and thus less care went into their construction. In the previous podcast you saw a model of the trench system, but in summary a front-line trench had a zigzag pattern to allow better coverage with machine guns, but also to restrict the damage of shells landing inside. They had saps going out into no man's land, the space between the British trench and the German trench, and communication trenches which ran back towards the reserve trenches. Throughout the trenches were dugouts, i.e. rooms dug into the ground to hold officers' accommodation. Enter the trench exhibition by the doorway and stop at the first scene, a British officer in a dugout. Listen to the dialogue and stop the podcast until it is finished. Siegfried Sassoon was one of the main poets of the war who attempted to depict life in the trenches as it really was. In his poem Trench Duty, he details the tasks he had to fulfil as an officer, inspecting the trenches and looking after his men. Trench duty. Shaken from sleep, and numbed and scarce awake, out in the trench with three hours watch to take, I blunder through the splashing murk, and then hear the gruff, muttering voices of the men crouching in cabins, candle-chinked with light. Hark! There's the big bombardment on our right, rumbling and bumping, and the dark's a glare of flickering horror in the sectors where we read the Bosch, men waiting, still and chilled, or crawling on their bellies through the wire. What? Stretcher bearers wanted. Someone killed. Five minutes ago I heard a sniper fire. Why did he do it? Starlight overhead. Blank stars. I'm wide awake, and some chaps dead. Now proceed to the scene ahead of you of two soldiers discussing life in the trenches. Listen to the dialogue and pause the podcast until you are ready. Robert Graves was born in Wimbledon in 1895 and survived the war. Graves went to Charterhouse School and won a scholarship to St John's College, Oxford but at the outbreak of the war he enlisted almost immediately, taking a commission in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. 
The RWF was also the regiment of Siegfried Sassoon, and the two became great friends. Graves even intervened when Sassoon issued his famous declaration against the war and convinced the medical board that his friend was suffering from shell shock. Through Sassoon, Graves also met Wilfred Owen. Graves outlined his war experience in Goodbye to All That, published in 1929, but his war poems were published in two main collections, Over the Brazier and Fairies and Fusiliers, which appeared during the war. Over the Brazier by Robert Graves What life to lead and where to go After the war, after the war We'd often talked this way before But I still see the brazier glow That April night still feel the smoke And stifling pungency of burning coke I thought a cottage in the hills, North Wales A cottage full of books Pictures and brass and cosy nooks and comfortable broad window sills, flowers in the garden, walls all white. I'd live there peacefully and dream and write. But Willie said, No, home's no good. Old England's quite a hopeless place. I've lost all feeling for my race. But France has given my heart and blood enough to last me all my life. I'm off to Canada with my wee wife. Come with us, Mac, old thing. But Mac drawled, no, a coral isle for me, a warm green jewel in the South Sea. There's merit in a lumber shack, and labour is a grand thing, but give me my hot beach and my cocoa nut. So then we built and stocked for Willie his log hut, and for Mac a calm, rockaby cradle on a palm. Idyllic dwellings, but this is silly. Mad war has now wrecked both, and what better hopes has my little cottage got? Now move to the exhibition of a soldier reading a letter home. A soldier's main contact with home was via letters and postcards. In a hurry they could send a field postcard, but more often than not they sent and received much longer letters. Non-commissioned officers and privates had their letters censored, whereas officers were not subjected to this. Sassoon, in his poem, in the pink, meaning all is well, attempted to capture one such instance. In the pink. So Davies wrote, This leaves me in the pink. Then scrawled his name, Your loving sweetheart Willie, with crosses for a hug. He'd had a drink of rum and tea, and though the barn was chilly, for once his blood ran warm. He had pay to spend. Winter was passing, Soon the year would mend. But he couldn't sleep that night. Stiff in the dark, he groaned and thought of Sundays at the farm, and how he'd go as cheerful as a lark, in his best suit, to wander arm-in-arm with brown-eyed Gwen, and whisper in her ear the simple, silly thing she liked to hear. And then he thought, Tomorrow night we trudge up to the trenches, and my boots are rotten, Five miles of stodgy clay and freezing sludge, And everything but wretchedness forgotten. Tonight he's in the pink, But soon he'll die, And still the war goes on, He don't know why. Moving to the middle of the trench, We can see some of the paraphernalia associated with trench life. 
As this is a British trench, you are now probably facing south. To your left, i.e. the east, is no man's land, and to your right, the rear lines of the British, i.e. to the west. On your left, you will see towards the floor a small elevation running along the trench. This is called the fire step, and at dawn and dusk, the soldiers will be asked to stand to, i.e. stand on the fire step and guard against an enemy attack. Protecting them slightly is the parapet, a bit of raised earth running along the top of the trench. Soldiers would look through peepholes or periscopes to see what activity was going on. It is also important to remember the geography. At dawn, the sun was rising, i.e. in the east, and thus silhouetting the German trenches. At dusk, it was in the west, thus silhouetting the British trenches. Both periods had their hazards, either blinding the British with the low sun or exposing them against its bright backdrop. Isaac Rosenberg served as a private during the war and thus writes from a different perspective to most of the poets, who were officers. In his famous poem, Break of Day in the Trenches, he attempts to capture the experience of the stand too. Break of Day in the Trenches by Isaac Rosenberg The darkness crumbles away. It is the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat, as I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear. Droll rat, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand, you will do the same to a German, soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between. It seems you inwardly grin as you pass strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes, less chance than you for life, bonds to the whims of murder, sprawled in the bowels of the earth, the torn fields of France. What do you see in our eyes at the shrieking iron and flame hurled through still heavens? What quaver, what heart aghast? Poppies whose roots are in man's veins drop and are ever dropping. But mine in my ear is safe, just a little white with the dust. Now move to the end of the exhibition. To your right you can see a soldier receiving emergency first aid before he is sent down the line to a casualty clearing station. To your left you can see soldiers going over the top, i.e. scaling the trench wall and attacking to no man's land. Sometimes this would have been part of a major attack across the line, preceded by an extensive artillery bombardment. At other times this would have been conducted at night as part of a raid on the German trenches. Ivor Gurney was born in 1890 and studied at Gloucester Cathedral School and won a scholarship to the Royal College of Music in 1911. In February 1915 he enlisted as a private in the Gloucestershire Regiment and saw action at Ypres where he was wounded in April 1917 and then gassed at the Battle of Passchendaele in September of the same year. He was invalided home and survived the war, but his existing mental instability was probably forced over the edge by what he had seen on the Western Front and he was certified insane in 1922, spending the rest of his life in asylums until his death in 1937. In his poem, The Silent One, Gurney attempts to capture the experience of crossing no man's land. The Silent One by Ivor Gurney Who died on the wires and hung there one of two? Who for his hours of life had chattered through infinite lovely chatter of Buck's accent? Yet faced and broken wires, stepped over and went a noble fool, faithful to his stripes and ended. 
But I, weak, hungry, and willing only for the chance of line, to fight in the line, lay down under unbroken wires, and saw the flashes, and kept unshaken, till the politest voice, a finicking accent, said, Do you think you might crawl through there? There's a hole. Darkness shot at. I smiled, as politely replied, I'm afraid not, sir. There was no hole, no way to be seen, nothing but chance of death after tearing of clothes. Kept flat, and watched the darkness, hearing bullets whizzing, and thought of music, and swore deep hearts, deep oaths, polite to God, and retreated, and came on again, and retreated, and a second time faced the screen. Once you have finished, exit the trench experience and resume the podcast when you get outside. Return now to the foyer outside of the trench experience where there is the large statue of the British soldier. Behind the statue we will see information on some of the generals and leaders charged with securing victory. There is considerable debate about the tactics used by these generals, especially on the Western Front and in particular the enigmatic figure of Sir Douglas Haig. Siegfried Sassoon left us in no doubt about his views on the men running the war, with his poem-based details. If I were fierce and bold and short of breath, I'd live with scarlet majors at the base, and speed glum heroes up the line to death. You'd see me with my puffy, petulant face, guzzling and gulping in the best hotel, reading the roll of honour. Poor young chap, I'd say. I used to know his father well. Yes, we lost heavily in this last scrap. And when the war is done, and youth stone dead, I toddle safely home and die in bed. This podcast is primarily focused on British poets of the Western Front, but we should not forget about the other major theatres of the war. Before you exit to the section on the home front, you might wish to look at the exhibits on the war in the air and at sea and in the countries other than France and Belgium. Pause the podcast until you are finished. Now proceed into the area marked the home front. In this small exhibit, you will see sections on the newspaper coverage at home, the experiences of the civilians in Britain and the rising importance of the role of women. Siegfried Sassoon directed his anger at the complacent attitude of civilians at home, notably the press, who he felt were misreporting the truth about the war, and women. In two of his most savage poems, Fight to the Finish and The Glory of Women, he angrily rebukes both. Fight to a finish. The boys came back. Bands played and flags were flying, and yellow pressmen thronged the sunlit street to cheer the soldiers who'd refrained from dying, and hear the music of returning feet. Of all the thrills and ardours war has brought, this moment is the finest, so they thought. Snapping their bayonets on to charge the mob, grim fusiliers broke ranks with glint of steel. At last the boys had found a cushy job. I heard the yellow pressmen grunt and squeal, and with my trusty bombers turned and went to clear those junkers out of Parliament. Glory of Women 
You love us when we're heroes, home on leave, or wounded in a mentionable place. You worship decorations. You believe that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace. You make us shells. You listen with delight by tales of dirt and danger fondly thrilled. You crown our distant ardours while we fight, and mourn our laurelled memories when we're killed. You can't believe that British troops retire. When hell's last horror breaks them, and they run, trampling the terrible corpses, blind with blood. O oh, German mother, dreaming by the fire, while you are knitting socks to send your son, his face is trodden deeper in the mud. Now move to the exhibition on women in war. The courage and conviction of women who served the war effort, and above all the loss they had to bear, cannot be overlooked. Again, let us turn to Vera Britton and her poem, Perhaps, which attempts to capture the anguish she felt at the death of her fiancé, Roland Leighton, who was killed in December 1915. Perhaps some day the sun will shine again, and I shall see that still the skies are blue, and feel once more I do not live in vain, although bereft of you. Perhaps the golden meadows at my feet will make the sunny hours of spring seem gay, and I shall find the white may blossom sweet, though you have passed away. Perhaps the summer woods will shimmer bright, and crimson roses once again be fair, and autumn harvest fields a rich delight, although you are not there. But though kind time may many joys renew, there is one greatest joy I shall not know again, because my heartful loss of you was broken long ago. Now go to the last small room entitled The End of the War. The First World War effectively finished with the armistice, which came into force at 11am on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. Although it is impossible to settle on exact numbers, the cost in lives was staggering. One estimate puts the number of deaths of combatants worldwide at over 8 million, with a further 19 million wounded. Of these, Britain and its empire suffered nearly a million deaths, of which 500,000 were never identified or found, and the names on memorials are all that is left. Writing nearly 20 years after the war ended, Edmund Blunden, representing all those who survived but could never forget what they had seen, wrote his reflective poem, Can You Remember? Can you remember? Yes, I still remember the whole thing in a way. Edge and exactitude depend on the day. Of all that prodigious scene there seems scanty loss, though mists mainly float and screen canal, spire and foss. Though commonly I fail to name that once obvious hill, and where we went and whence we came to be killed or kill. Those mists are spiritual and luminous obscure, evolved of countless circumstance of which I am sure, of which, at the instance of sound, smell, change and stir, new old shapes forever intensely recur. And some are sparkling, laughing, singing, young, heroic, mild, and some incurable, twisted, shrieking, dumb, defiled. Now exit the room. 
We are about to finish this podcast. As you exit, you will be confronted by Sir William Orpen's painting, The Peace Treaty, is signed in the Palace of Versailles, depicting the signing of the treaty which formally ended the war in 1919. The conditions of which were so harsh they precipitated the economic collapse in Germany which led, in part, to the rise of National Socialism under Hitler and ultimately World War II. Depicted at the tables are the heads of state and some of the generals present, including the British Prime Minister Lloyd George. Rudyard Kipling, the poet of the British Empire, had been a staunch advocate of the war at its outbreak and the need to stop German militarism. He had used his influence to get his son Jack into the army despite his chronic short-sightedness. Jack Kipling served in the Irish Guards but was killed within a few days of arriving at the front at the Battle of Luz. Rudyard Kipling and his wife spent months trying to discover what had happened to their son as his whereabouts were unknown and then after the war, once they had accepted that he was dead, continued to search for his body on the battle-torn front line. In his Epitaphs of the War, published in 1919, Kipling wrote this, A dead statesman. I could not dig, I dared not rob, Therefore I lied to please the mob. Now all my lies are proved untrue, And I must face the men I slew. What tale shall serve me here among mine angry and defrauded young? We have now finished this podcast.